Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode four of our podcast. Every episode, Jesse will read from Time's Riddle, a story project we're working on, and then we'll share some of the history behind the reading. We hope everyone will go on over to the Tudor Time Machine Facebook page and join our Tudor-minded community. In the last episode, we were introduced to Philomena Arundel, but today we're traveling back to Elizabeth's court. Young Constance Stoner is trapped by forces beyond her control. A Swedish princess caprice and an English marquis sex drive might lose her the gig of a lifetime as a maid of honor. So, Tudor-minded people, let's start. Chapter 4, The Palace of Whitehall, in which Constance readies for the Swedes and goes to the Catholics. Some ladies' maids packed beautifully, but not when, Constance thought. And when the time came to unpack, there were always stray beads and ribbons floating at the bottom of the traveling chest, the sight of which brought sobs and endless begging of pardon from Wynne. Constance would have liked to arrange her things herself, but that too would upset her servant, and again lead to the copious shedding of tears. Lady Anne Russell, one of Constance's fellow maids of honor, skulked around Constance's trunk. You borrowed that burgundy cloak from Catherine Hastings, Constance. No, that is mine, Constance said. Lady Mary Howard sat on the bed, stuffing herself with sweetmeats. Have some much pain, Constance. Fill out that bodice. Oh, that I were lush to spill over, Constance laughed. Suspiciously tasty, Constance guessed the march pain had been intended for the royal sweet tooth. She reached for another piece. Where did you get such delicacies, Mary? I made a new friend in the privy kitchens. Oh, dearest Constance, do not go. I will have to sleep with Mistress Sheffield. She snores like a cow's wet barts. Mary puckered her lips and began spluttering. <coughs> Constance held up her hand. Mary, stop spitting. And she is twice your size, Constance. You take up so little room I can spread out as I please. Mistress Sheffield would be shocked to hear such a description of herself, thought Constance. The girl was tall with an elegant neck and lovely manners, and her sleeping little purr was hardly a snore. Impulsively, Constance pinched Mary. You cannot hide it, Mary. You will miss me. Bridget Skipworth squeezed onto the bed next to Mary's plump behind, edging out little Anna Windsor, who shoved back to stop herself from ending up on the floor. I wish I was going, Bridget exclaimed. The Swede loves amusements, and I have never seen creamier skin or a finer figure. Anna Windsor piped in. Her dress is so uncommon. I covet that little golden crown she wears. How strange it will be to be with so many foreigners, Bridget continued. Constance, it will seem as if you were in Sweden instead of in a tiresome old English house. Bedford House, where the Queen herself absolutely insisted the Swedish Princess Lodge is one of my father's residences, Anne Russell announced. I am sure it exceeds any of your Skipworth hovels. Mistress Constance, those are my hose. They are mine. My bones are honest. I will count my hose just to make sure a mistake has not been made. Anne Russell was one Constance would not miss. The others she had true affection for, for the life they shared as the captive audience to the Queen. 
After 16 hours following the royal tutor at a breakneck pace, she enjoyed lazing about with these ladies, gambling and gossiping. The demands of concentration, coordination, and respect were worn thin by the end of the day. Constance would miss their companionship. I cannot believe you are leaving me, moaned a glassy-eyed Mary, hugging a pillow. Stop being moppish, Mary. Help me pack my feathered hat before Anne Russell claims it. Lady Elizabeth Clinton, a groom shouted out. Lady Elizabeth swept in and headed straight for Constance, who bowed her head, then, thinking better of it, dropped a deep curtsy. Constance did not feel worthy of such attention. She felt uncertain. Was Elizabeth Clinton displeased with her? She did not really know this woman, who had been so considerate of her, but was so far above her in rank. Constance found Lady Elizabeth a broker of sorts, gifts for kind words about who should be an ambassador, foreknowledge of Irish affairs, an old friend who knew a someone. All the Queen's ladies aspired to be like Elizabeth Clinton, or imagined they might someday better her. Constance thought that was not possible. Lady Elizabeth had been a friend to the Queen when she was not the Queen, only a princess, and Lady Elizabeth had grown shrewd with many of the same blows. Elizabeth Clinton was a powerful figure at court, and she wore her authority with her customary red, velvet this time. Constance, I find no fault with you. Being sent to the Swedish princess was none of your doing. Stand up. Present yourself as the lady you are. I see your preparations are almost complete. Constance threw back her shoulders, saying, You are so kind to come, madam. She knew it was no good thing to be dispensable by the Queen, and yet this move to Bedford House did not seem to be a punishment. Mildred Cecil had not admonished her for her engagement to Charles, and Lady Elizabeth also appeared, equanimous. The lady might tell her why she was chosen to go, but she could not possibly ask. We will see each other often, Constance, and when Princess Cecilia returns to Sweden, you will return to us. Constance, unsure what to add, gestured to her trunk. I have packed the farthingale you gave me most carefully. Elizabeth Clinton wrinkled her nose at the small talk. Constance must forge ahead and say something substantial. Yet if the princess convinces Her Majesty to marry the Swedish King Eric, she may never leave. She may remain as an ambassador. Is that not true, madam? Indeed, Constance. The princess has said that it is her role as emissary for her brother that brought her to England. Yet a little observation shows it is not her aim. She has been here for weeks now, enjoying dancing and festivities, never pressing her brother's offer. Madam, do you believe her here not to sue for her brother, but for some less honest purpose? Dare you venture the word spy, Constance? Constance flushed. Indeed not, madam. I would not venture such a thing. Still, it may be the case. Every courtier hailing from foreign soil will relay what they have seen. Such is their role. King Eric will call the princess back to Sweden. He will want to hear a true account of our young Tudor queen. Else why go to the expense? Indeed, every prince in Europe would see our monarch for themselves if they could. 
Before Constance could reply, an uneven voice like a braying donkey exploded into the room and was enough to stun the chatter of the entire place into silence. Where she stood before our eyes, her robe cast aside, upon her whole body there was nowhere a blemish. What shoulders, what arms I saw, I touched. The outline of a paunchy man holding a book to his face. Constance had seen that elephantine silhouette before. Lady Elizabeth called, Sir Francis, leave these girls, find your bed. They are too loud, I will read them to sleep. The form of her breasts, which were perfect to squeeze. How smooth her belly beneath her taunt breast. Constance cringed for Lady Lettuce Nollies as she rushed across the room, pleading, My Lord Father, you must stop this! But Sir Francis went on, How long and soft her side! How youthful her thigh! Why question everything? I saw nothing not at all praiseworthy and pressed her nude body closely against mine. Several ladies held up candles. Constance recoiled at the sight of Sir Francis's salt and pepper beard blending into the rest of his body hair, his genitalia obscured under a sagging belly. Jesu, he had never appeared naked before. She closed her eyes against the sight. Father, you shame yourself, Lettuce despaired. I pray for such a bridegroom, shrieked Mary Howard. His feet, he is a goat. Anne Russell laughed, and Constance peeked through her fingers as Sir Francis twirled to show his buttocks, goaded by applause. You girls are venomed devils, and you, sir, must leave, shrieked Mistress Aglinesby the mother of the maids. Constance thought Mistress Aglinesby had little command as the woman crawled around on the floor trying to contain her fluffy menace of a dog, Mrs. Poffs, who was jumping and nipping at the naked man's... No, she could not even think it. It made her flinch. Lady Elizabeth Clinton gave Constance a wink as she took her leave. Lady Clinton would never take sides in something as silly as this. I am not finished with my Ovid! Sir Francis exclaimed, kicking at the dog and towing Mistress Aglineby in the face. Mistress Aglineby leapt to her feet, the yipping dog stuffed under her arm. I am the authority here! I am the mother of the maids! Would she cry? Constance wondered. Mistress Aglineby's sense of humour had long since abandoned her, and her eyes were ringed black. Sir Francis walked further into the room and bellowed, Who does not know the rest? Together we rested, exhausted. He sat himself at a set of virginals. I must finish with the song. Who does not know how to fuck? May such middays often come for me. Four guards marched into the chamber. Constance followed the applause of the other girls. Guards, why do you halt? cried Mistress Aglamby. Take Sir Francis away! Madam, we wish to do your will, and yet Sir Francis is of so high an office. Sir Francis is prone to this puckishness, said another of the guards. I too am in high office, the mother of the maids. I wish him gone! The woman was in a bit of an apoplexy. Constance felt concerned. Ouch! 
Lady Nazareth Southwell had grabbed her arm. Hurry, come now. We can slip out while all eyes are on that fool, Sir Francis. Is it tonight? Constance asked. Yes, yes, hurry. Constance rushed after Nazareth through the door into a dark passageway. Mistress Aglionby's cry that she, she was the mother of the maids, followed as the cold came up harsh and bitter. Constance heard the fast-moving rustle of Nazareth's dress. Disoriented, she reached out. Nazareth, where is Mary? I am here, right in front of you, Mary said. Where? I, I cannot see you. Here, Mary whispered. Are you standing in a doorway? Of course. Do you wish me to be arrested? Oh, do not poke me, Mary, Nazareth snapped. We will all be arrested. Get behind the tapestry. Someone is coming. The heavy material kept out the cold. Constance's relief ended abruptly as the dust from the hanging filled her mouth. She could sense Nazareth moving and tried to peek, but she could see little. Then a dim light lifted the darkness and she caught sight of shadows, guards with torches. As they passed, the darkness returned and Nazareth pushed her to move along. She saw they were entering the stone gallery. Nazareth grabbed her, pinning her close and pressing herself tight against the wall. Constance heard Mary's low, shallow breaths. Mary? Nazareth stuck her hand over Constance's mouth. Constance pressed herself flatter, more heavy footsteps approaching. They would be caught. They would be taken to the queen. What explanation could they give for skulking around the palace in the dead of night? Constance considered. They could confess to cavorting with lovers. The queen would be livid, yet not as livid as she would be if she suspected the truth. Constance started as another guard, this one alone and holding a small lantern passed by. He growled as he pressed in near the tapestry. Her heart jumped as Nazareth barked two short barks. Come quickly, Nazareth breathed. It was black as pitch as Constance ran down the long hall toward the sound of rattling keys. A hand grabbed her and shoved her outside. Huzzah! It was a fine shortcut and the moon was up. She stood by the bowling green and there was Mary, skulking and hunched. Nazareth came through holding a lantern. The flame was feeble and fighting the icy wind. Constance put her arm around Mary and her friend snuggled in. Make haste, urged Nazareth. Open that barrel. Constance helped Nazareth yank off the top and took out rough woolen cloaks, handing one to Mary. They pulled up the hoods against the cold. This wall smells like fish, Mary complained. My cheeks will go raw in the wind. If only we had visits. Stop whining, Nazareth scolded. Constance followed Mary and Nazareth, picking her way down to the water stairs fighting the wind with each step. She slipped. Her arse hit the frozen mud, and she struggled to get up. The cold pressed on her, making her even more awkward. Nazareth helped her stand. What if you fell in the river, Constance? It would be your death, Mary lamented. Mary, I would have to have slipped down the path and the stairs before I could be swept away by the current, Constance comforted her friend. Mary whimpered. Nazareth suggested they link arms. Constance was pleased with this newfound stability, and they began moving slowly across the path and down the icy wooden steps. Fighting the tide, a barge with a number painted out approached the landing. It was never such a pageant before, Constance remarked, thinking how easily she had slipped out of the household of the Marquis of Northampton. 
You were not in the Queen's service before, observed Nazareth. The barge rocked on the wild river. The waterman stretched out his hand in anticipation, but Constance had no intention of reaching for it, and a glance to her companions showed they did not either. Ladies, the man urged, you must jump into the barge or I will be on my way. I will not be taken for aiding you. Nazareth, uncharacteristically, did not spring from the dock into the boat, but hung back, warily eyeing the water. Constance realized she would have to be brave. It was not that far down into the barge. She had jumped before, though not into a boat against raging wind with freezing water to engulf her should she miss. Before her jumping was limited to the space between the beds in her chamber, and sometimes off a small rock. Constance's feet landed with a thud. Nazareth and Mary quibbled, but in a moment they too were safely aboard. As the barge was underway, Constance felt increasingly queasy, and before long she saw Mary was emptying her guts into the choppy waters of the Thames. The girl's eyes reminded Constance of the Queen's sick puppy. All that much pain, Mary groused. The river seemed strange, darker, quieter. It struck Constance that they were alone. There were no lanterns on the bows of other boats, no shouts of passing, no cries of eastward ho or westward ho from ferrymen as they called destinations to customers on the riverbank. The cold must have sent the usual throngs home. Where had Nazareth found a waterman willing to come out on such a night? Constance worried. Did the lad even have a license? The boat steered awkwardly toward a set of stairs, and after a few heart-stopping attempts, it clunked hard against the dock and came to a standstill. Constance clambered out, and almost before her feet were safely on the landing, the boatman was rowing away. Nazareth led her and Mary up the rocky shore to sneak along a back garden wall. A servant in Howard livery appeared. This way, he whispered as he held up a torch. My family's livery, did you note it? bragged Mary in a low pitch as they rounded a corner to see a cart and a hooded servant as a driver. Mary, I see a little vomit there on your cheek, Nazareth commented as Mary climbed into the cart and lay down. Nazareth never halted as she pushed Constance into the cart and leapt in herself. The thick layer of fresh hay was warm and the driver came around and sprinkled more to conceal them. Constance felt somewhat safe, but her nose itched. Through the hay she watched the dark shadows of the enormous houses crowded along the strand. At Stoner House there were miles of grass and trees. It was lonely there, yet she had had peace in green, leafy Stoner Park. At the end, when her mother had been far beyond recovery, Constance found the silence a balm. She never feared the rattles and strange bodily fluids of her poor mother, she wanted to forget the gruesome end, but she could not. She remembered how her mother's bowels had dropped from her body. The fear of death combined with sure humiliation. Constance felt the cart slow. Who goes there? called a voice. Mary's hand flailed near hers, and finding her hand squeezed and squeezed, Constance wanted to cry out, Let go! But she dared not. The driver and the night guard were haggling, she was sure some substantial bribing was underway. And after all, they needed passage out of Westminster and past the Temple Bar into the city proper. The cart lurched back into motion, passing a cluster of dark shops and merchants' stalls. Constance shook off Mary's hand. Jesus, 
Mary said. If I am killed directly on the way to Mass, I will go straight to heaven, and I will have golden wings, huge ones, do you not believe, Constance, and a harp? Indeed, Mary, you will fly about heaven with your big golden wings, Constance answered. Yet I do not wish to die. Nor I. Then stop your gibble-gabble, Nazareth scolded. Mary puffed, but Constance was happy to cease this talk of death. The night pressed in on her, and fear made her dark. She would think of her Aunt Stoner, who would be so proud of this fearless journey to a secret mass. What a formidable woman Aunt Stoner was. She had lost her own husband, yet it was she who took over the education of her sons and the running of Stoner House, and also set the standard for Constance herself, planning for the future, calling in every favor, negotiating with distant, powerful relatives, and finally gaining the prize she had worked for, Constance joined the household of the Lady Marquess of Northampton. The first time Constance saw the Lady Marquess, she remembered thinking she was so beautiful, but so very ill, that skin, waxy and translucent, the cough bloody. Constance knew she would not remain long in the service of this woman. Physicians came and went, promising cures that Constance knew were lies, The Lady Marquess of Northampton's final days were nothing like Constance's mother's, where the patient had only Constance herself as company. Courtiers flocked to see the influential woman. Even the Queen came. The Marquess sat at the foot of his wife's bed, while Lady Elizabeth Clinton held the limp hands and read aloud for hours. Constance remembered the day Lady Mildred Cecil came to visit. She told Lady Elizabeth Clinton it was sinful to be so sad, It was a blessing for the Lady Marquess to go to heaven. Lady Elizabeth had flushed and closed her eyes. Opening her eyes, Lady Elizabeth had watched Constance as she washed the face of her dying friend. Pitikins, she was thinking about death again, and yet she could not fault herself. Was not death a part of life? Had not Lady Elizabeth Clinton taken an interest in Constance and recommended her as a maid of honor to no lesser person than the Queen? And Aunt Stoner proved herself again, despite a hatred of the Queen, enemy of all true Catholics. That kind woman had scraped together the money to pay Constance's way back to London, and also to sacrifice an entire bag of gold sovereigns to present to the Queen as payment for Constance's presence at court. Constance owned all fidelity. Constance slid out of the cart, the muted commotion around her reminding her of the bright side of this endeavor. Courtiers draped in fur alighted from horses. A sedan chair was set down by servants stifling their panting, and handsome figures piled out. See how many people came, Mary whispered. The Bishop Guzman, the Spanish ambassador himself, will lead the mass tonight. His Spanish retinue are here. What tasty cakes! Oh, look, the Viscount Montague's son, he is becoming a proper man. "'Have you come to oogle or attend?' asked Nazareth. "'I have two eyes, Nazareth. One may oogle,' Mary replied. Constance saw a few well-armed men milling about the side of the churchyard. They must be on watch. Her nerves rose again. Nazareth was herding her towards the doors. "'Nazareth, we are safely arrived. Be calm,' Constance begged. Just inside the chapel were knots of attendees, and Mary commenced picking hay off Constance's dress with urgency. 
Sir Charles is here, Mary said. Look there, Constance, Constance, look, see there. I see him. Must you be so broad, Mary? He was impossible to miss, as he was the tallest person there. As she walked by him, a slip of paper slid into her hand. La, should she permit this? Should or no, she had to discover the contents, yet not in the sight of Mary. That girl would rip it out of her hand and run about the sanctuary with it. Holding tightly to the note, she kept forward. The chapel was crammed. Safely inside, stealth had been abandoned, and people boisterously competed with tales of dangerous journeys. Constance stumbled as a groomsman shoved her, forcing acclaim with a wooden prayer stool as his elderly mistress chided him. Bells rang and the servers processed up the aisle. Incense filled the air, wrapping Constance in the familiar, sweet, woody scent. She felt at peace. Bishop Guzman de Silva began chanting. Yesterday, Constance had heard him with Her Majesty mocking a French emissary's hat, saying the man was wearing a pastry on his head. The Queen had laughed and called Guzman her witty Spaniard. The bishop was a man of high quality to finesse the English queen when his heart lay elsewhere. The mutter of the bishop was soothing, and the embroidery on his vestments a wonder to behold. Thud. Everyone was on their knees. Constance followed. Oh, they were standing again. She looked around the chapel for Charles. She was pleased he had smuggled the little note to her. He had never done such a thing before. Spying him, she felt a prick of guilt. His face was rapt. She turned her gaze to follow his, which was glued to Guzman. No, not to the bishop himself, but to what the bishop held up for everyone in the chapel to see. A golden monstrance, and in the centre, surrounded by shining jewels, a relic. Whispers around Constance began with a single theme. The relic was the scrap of the virgin's cloak. Constance was astonished. She felt a surge of joy. The bishop was not even a man. He was an angel, God sent. He must have smuggled this object so outlawed, so sacred, against his body and brought it to them all the way from Spain, directly from the hands of the Catholic King Philip. She had never seen such a thing as this relic. She had only heard of the relic of her own family and the oft-told tale of her kinswoman, Lady Isabel Stoner. Constance's mother had recounted many times how, years before Constance was even born, Lady Isabel had stood against King Henry's men. The brutish soldiers raided Stoner House, bent on destroying everything in the Stoner Chapel. The chalices, the vestments, the rosaries, the jeweled books. Her mother described each object in detail, always finishing with the most precious, a signet ring that once belonged to the martyr, Sir Thomas More himself. The brave Isabel grabbed all she could, tied everything in a bundle, and ran to the stables. The men chased her, crazed. Constance's mother had always lowered her voice as she told this chilling part. Lady Isabel had made it to the stables, but saw the horses had been let go. She plunged into a hay bale to hide. The men's cursing voices ricocheted above her, and she believed she was safe. Then a fantastic light filled the room. Fire. She had to run or die. There were no boats on the river. Lady Isabel prayed for speed, and somehow, as Constance listened to the story, she always prayed that Lady Isabel would have speed too. 
Yet however many times Constance heard the tale, and however hard she prayed, Lady Isabel never made it. The horsemen grabbed her legs and arms, and the brutes threw her into the river as if she were a nobody. Yet she struggled. She reached out her hands and felt the roots in the bank. She was able to pull herself to the water's surface and take a breath of air. She managed to get out a leg and then roll in the soft mud. She struggled to stand on the bank. As the men rode by, they pulled the bundle from her hands and mocked her. Constance's mother's face would shine as she ended her story on this dramatic note. Lady Isabel never gave up hope that all could someday be reclaimed. Constance gazed up at the monstrance, cradled in the Bishop Guzman's hands. She saw the tears of joy around her as the people kissed the reliquary and fell to their knees as it passed. She reached out and touched the edge of the monstrance, transfixed by the soft white and pink cloth in the center. She felt a shudder. What mercy this bishop showed them. Guzman blessed the crowd, and as everyone bowed, the relic was carried off. Constance wondered where it would be hidden, how it could be kept safe from the queen's religious authorities, beasts who would burn it or grind it into dust if they found it. Pushed forward by the crowd, Constance knelt, and the host dropped onto her tongue. The bishop began the recession. Halfway up the aisle, he paused. A young woman came forward. Guzman laid his hands on her bowed head before continuing out of the chapel. Constance recognized the girl for the spectacular gown she wore to Mass. This one was dark green velvet trimmed with ermine. There was a rumor about that the girl's family paid for the wine and candles of the service. The mother was the widow of a wealthy merchant and the owner of an inn where many of the peers lodged. At the last Mass it was apparent to Constance that the girl's mother was very ill. She must have paid for special prayers. The young woman returned to her place, and several hands reached to touch her. She had a strong face, round, with high cheekbones, hair twisted up in a jeweled snood. She looked down as she walked, but an expression of certainty set her mouth, and she accepted the sympathy offered her with cordial efficiency. Constance thought the girl close to her own age, but her air of command made her seem older. Mary grabbed Constance's arm. Come with me. We must pay our respects to Mistress Philomena Arundel, the one whose mother is ill. I am sorry for her, but I do not know the lady. Oh, protect me, dear Constance. I owe her mother money. What do you say? Half of London is in Millicent Arundel's debt. Come, come, I must pay my respects. If you are with me, the daughter will not ask for what I owe. She is at mass, Mary. I do not think she will produce a note from the air. Her dress is of the court, but she is of the city. You do not know this flinty lass, Mary insisted. But Constance shook her off to search out a quiet alcove where she could read the note from Charles. What a beautiful hand, she thought, and there was not a blot on the page. Should she read it or just admire it? It was as fine as a painting. It was titillating to imagine that just hours ago Charles was thinking of her and planning what to write. She had to peek at the words. Her breath stopped in her throat. He had chosen, my dearest, sweet. Constance felt a thrill and then a plummet. He wanted to meet her at the tilt yard of Whitehall tomorrow. Oh, rot it. It was not what she wanted. 
to tell him she was being sent to the Swedes? She caught his eye. Charles gave her a nod. She plied a half-hearted smile and followed him to an alcove, wondering if her face had been reddened by the prickly sensation of nerves and excitement. This was the first clandestine moment they would share. He was so daring, and she had to confound it with her news. Mistress Constance, the beauty of the mass has enhanced your own. She wondered if she should give a compliment in return. She stood close to him. He had very good hair, golden, shining in the candlelight. She could say it looked like a halo. Perhaps not. It was too much to comment on his person. She decided to say something she was sure they would both agree on. Was not the relic? Charles jumped in. What courage to bring it to us. Were you not inspired? Sir, I was. A relic always unites, does it not? Once a holy object at Stoner brought people from many countries, but now everything is gone and the chapel lies empty. Ah, it is true. Without people clamouring, bearing witness to a relic, I can believe your chapel would be still. It is a man's fickle way. You witness how many cast aside their faith so they may rise at court. Indeed, my own brother, the heir to our family title, is among them. Yet you are not. I admire your determination to get here. Constance curtsied. She chose not to tell him that Nazareth had arranged everything and that she had only followed. But in truth, she herself had been brave enough to jump into the barge when Nazareth hesitated. You have a difficult return. I will not keep you, Charles said. Tomorrow I can come to the park at Whitehall, just outside the tilt yard. Sir, I am loath to tell you that I am being moved from court. His face drew serious. Has the Queen discovered the understanding between us? No, no, if so, I, I do not know of it. I will go to the household of the Princess Cecilia of Sweden. She said this with as much enthusiasm as she could muster. I will find a way to see you there. I would not suffer you to marry me before we are friends. Constance was astonished. He was admirable, upstanding, very tall. Her aunt had done her a great service by arranging this connection. Nazareth bustled over. What are you doing, Constance? The cart is waiting and I cannot pay the guard enough to stand at Whitehall all night to let us back in. Show some consideration. Constance flushed. Nazareth was such a bossy boots to shame her this way. The minutes will drag until I see you again, pure Constance. Charles bowed to Nazareth. My apologies. Oh no, no, the fault is mine, Constance said. Who cares? Make haste. Nazareth handed Constance her cloak and Charles placed the wrap over Constance's shoulders before she scurried after Nazareth. Nazareth makes me laugh, and she was a real person. Nazareth Southwell, she was a lady-in-waiting to the queen. All the ladies at court in this episode were real people, and they were there around 1565. Yeah, and I think it's really surprising that this crazy scene of Sir Francis Knollys regaling the maids of honor with dirty poetry actually happened. And what's more, it was recorded for all of history. What's left to posterity is frightening. <laughs> and Mistress Aglionsby was mother of the maids at this time. So that means she took care of all these young ladies in Elizabeth's court. And I bet she did freak out trying to keep them under control. 
listening to you read the conversation between Lady Clinton and Constance, it reminds me again how much we talked about trying to stay within the social realities of the time. I think we feel history is impossible to really understand if you assume everyone had the same personal liberties that we have now. There is a temptation in historical fiction to make characters relatable by giving them a kind of modern sense of self. I think we think that's kind of a mistake. I mean, to really understand a time period, you have to try to put yourself in the headspace of that time. Constance would think about duty first, the power of the monarchy, the limitations of what she can actually do or say, and also how she perceives her place in the society. A young woman like Constance would never have imagined that she could demand personal agency. No, being outspoken and individualistic was not a virtue in the 16th century. Even though those are the kind of characters we admire today, it's not so much about only historical accuracy. It's also about historical spirit. Yes, the 16th century had people who had many wands. But certain things were just impossible. Yeah, I mean, Constance can't think, I'll just go and get a master's in business and help my family after I buy a condo. The court is the only game in town, and Lady Clinton is her patron. Constance is desperate to impress Lady Clinton, but she also believes truly in her every fiber of her being that her immortal soul is in danger if she doesn't go to mass. It's a very dramatic moment for her. I think the way that those beliefs were internalized in that time period is really... It is hard for us to imagine. I agree. And the Spanish ambassador, Guzman de Silva, he was a real person. And think of him. He was a spy, but he was so much more than a spy. Yes, and he was having a mass right under Elizabeth's nose. I mean, we know he did that, and it was so dangerous. But not as dangerous as it would have been for someone like Constance, because for her to attend that mass risked everything. Guzman is powerful. He's an ambassador, and he would be protected by King Philip of Spain. Yes, and you could not mess with Spain. It was a super powerful empire at the time. Guzman even dares to bring a relic to Mass. And we don't know if that actually happened, but the loss of the relics was very hard on the Catholic population in England. They saw the relics as something extraordinary. Very powerful, yeah. And Constance recalls stories of her own family, and this raid on Stoner during the reign of Henry VIII. I mean, we don't know if there was actually a raid on Stoner House itself during the Reformation, but Henry certainly organized a lot of raids um, on abbeys and churches, and most notoriously on the grave of Thomas Becket, which Henry completely demolished. And he melted it down and saved the jewels and, you know, blasted the relics of Thomas Becket out of a cannon. He was so afraid of the power and strength of, of these kind of relics of the Catholic Church. They had such import for the people. And so many people in England were really caught in a dilemma of Catholic loyalty and loyalty to the Queen, because those were both things they felt very deeply. And they must have felt pulled in all directions. A lot of people did what they were told to do outwardly, and we don't know whatever their personal convictions might or might not have been or how they truly thought about it. Yes, and Constance's uh, fiancé in the story is a Paget. So the Pagets were a Catholic family who, like a lot of Catholic families at the time, were split about staying loyal to the Pope and staying loyal to the Queen. So some members of the Pagets put political survival first and 
you know, pledged loyalty to the queen and some didn't. And whatever they thought privately, publicly, they backed whoever was in power and other members didn't. Charles Pageant, who was a real person, historically, was really profoundly attached to his Catholicism. Absolutely, yes. Um, And another guy from a Catholic family is uh, Sir William Howard, who's Mary Howard's father. So William Howard was Elizabeth's Chamberlain in 1565, but he was someone who had been able to survive politically through all the Tudor monarchs, Henry, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth. And that really was no easy feat. It's one might want to feel like, oh, when there was a Catholic monarch, everyone was Catholic. And then when there was a Protestant monarch, everyone was Protestant. But it, it wasn't like that. People hung on and they knew things. And it's a bit like a U.S. civil servant who's been through both Republican and Democratic presidents. Right, exactly. And uh, I mean, Elizabeth needed to hold on to people who knew how things ran. And just like all the other high families. The Howards had family members who remained Roman Catholic and loyal to the Pope, and then others who didn't, either because it was more expedient not to, or because maybe they genuinely were not Papists. Exactly. It's really hard for us to know. So anyway, we're leaving Constance at the end of this episode to get back to court with Nazareth and Mary at her heels. (laughs) Right. So listen to the next episode of Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.